Hearing voices from NPR. I wake up many nights crying over this kid. I still see him in my dreams. This is For the Fallen, a Hearing Voices Memorial Day special. Will your children someday say, I'm sure glad Dad died to make Iraq safer? No. They died standing with their friends, doing their jobs, fulfilling some far-flung, nearly non-existent notion called duty. A special for Memorial Day with interviews and essays from StoryCorps, This I Believe, Operation Homecoming, and the voices of veterans and their families. I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. Tonight I'll say, have a great day and I love you to my husband who was 11 time zones away in Iraq. For the Fallen, a Memorial Day special from Hearing Voices. From NPR, this is Hearing Voices. Remember, at this point, when he gets this last one, the Marine's going to become over. Okay. So now, present on the Marine, okay? I'm going to come in here, I'm going to tuck in the three rounds. He's going to just turn around and march off. And when you're done with your talk, I'm going to still be back. Sailors practice folding the flag while Marines rehearse a 21-gun salute in preparation for a funeral. They're at Calverton National Cemetery on Long Island, part of a military honor guard for a fallen Navy SEAL. You're going to go ahead and lift the flag and hold the flag. About waist high, right about where you guys have it now. Uh, this is called a four-man fold that we usually use uh, for the full honor ceremonies that we have. It consists of the four men folding the flag and additional two people receiving that flag and presenting it to, uh, in this case, it's going to be an admiral and a SEAL team member to present to the next of kin, the fiancé and, and, uh, and the mother. Uh, So it is much more difficult to do it on a person that passed away while on active duty, especially when you look at the date of birth, and usually it's less than mine. So that uh, that kind of hits home. Right at the beginning, before the chaplain does his benediction, you're going to hold it all the way through. After the American Civil War, communities in the north and south began setting aside a day to honor those who had fallen. They say 620,000 died in that war. 620,000 more than the population of Denver, Milwaukee, Baltimore, or Memphis. After World War I, the holiday became known in some places as Decoration Day. Today, the last Monday of May, is Memorial Day. I am Major Robert Schaefer, United States Army Special Forces, the Green Berets, and this is For the Fallen, a Hearing Voices special supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. During this next hour, it is my great privilege to bring to you a collection of stories honoring those who've made the ultimate sacrifice for their country, for us. We will hear veterans and family members reading letters, telling stories, and remembering their loved ones. I hope that you will take a few minutes out of your holiday, surrounded by family and friends, to listen and think of those who've given their lives so we might all enjoy the freedoms and blessings of our hard-won democracy. Well, it's part of military tradition courtesy that when we do a full honor ceremony that we present a 21-gun salute in honor of the fallen. So that's what my Marines are here for. It consists of seven-man detail, each firing three rounds. And when you get ready to fire... They go to a 45-degree angle so that when they fire, the rounds actually go over the casket.
Day is done, gone the sun. From the lake, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest. God is nigh. Taps, or Butterfield's Lullaby, its original name, has the power to reduce the strongest and the bravest among us to torrents of silent tears. I and so many others have stood in formation and watched as our brothers and sisters were laid to rest. And no matter how much composure you think you have, if you've lost a friend in combat, as soon as the bugler blows those first few notes, you know you're going to lose it, standing in front of everybody with tears falling down on your uniform. And as those sad, slow notes linger, the faces of my buddies all come back to me, and I mourn them all again. Most of all, I think about Joe Saponsic. Super Saponsic. We called him Super because he was the best of us all. I think about Joe and when we stood on stage next to each other being awarded our Green Berets. I think about what a damn fine soldier he was and how I was always a little envious of him because he could always do things a little better than I could. I think about our two years of training and then heading off to 10th Special Forces Group together. I think about how happy I was to see him a year later. His team relieved mine on a mission in some godforsaken place trying to keep people from killing each other. I remember leaning over a wooden table in a bombed-out room and pointing out to Joe on a map the exact spot where I'd driven over a mine. I was lucky to have survived. I warned Joe to watch out, to be careful there. I'd been home for two months when I heard that Joe's Humvee had rolled over a mine in that exact same spot. But unlike me, Joe was killed. The bastards had experimented on me realized they needed more explosive, tried it again, and killed Joe. So whenever I hear Taps play, I think about standing there at Joe's funeral, crying like a baby. I feel guilty, because I think it probably should have been me. Am I responsible for Joe's death? Of course not. I know that. I hate that damn song, and I love that damn song, because even if it means that I'll be embarrassed and cry like a baby, at least I'll get to be with my buddy Joe for a while. Taps is played more than 5,000 times a year 
at Arlington National Cemetery. When we hear taps, we salute if we're in uniform and place our hands on our hearts if we're not. You should, too. I'll be thinking about Joe. The Military Honor Guard was recorded by Charles Lane of SecondWindow.org with Navy Lieutenant Commander Snyder and Captain Cohen Sergeant Trigger, U.S. Marine Corps. The bugler was Lieutenant Lortiz, U.S. Army Reserve. In this next piece, we hear the British version of TAPS, called Last Post. Every evening, each sentry post was inspected, and a bugle call was played. The Last Post signaled the end of the military day. It is now customary at all British military funerals. It's a freezing cold January night under the Menin Gate in the town of Ypres in western Belgium. We're waiting for two men with orange traffic cones to stop the cars whizzing by so that uniformed veterans can blow the last post in honor of the British soldiers who fought and died defending this town from the German army between 1914 and 1918. This ritual has been performed every night at exactly 8 p.m. since 1927 when the gate was built. It's as big as the Arc de Triomphe. The only time it had to stop was during the German occupation in World War II. Then it took place in England until Belgium was liberated. Even tonight, in this cold, there are about a dozen onlookers here. Three couples with children, one man with a video camera, and silent tribute. The walls of this gigantic stone arch are completely covered with names. 54,896 names of the men whose bodies were never found, who could never be buried in individual graves. Private Peter Walsh, First Class, Lance Corporal Beckwith, AWA. I was hid behind a big tree that was knocked down or fallen, and I could see these Germans in the woods across this big field, and I saw this young kid crawling up a ditch straight towards my tree. So I let him crawl, I didn't fire at him, but when he got up within three or four foot of me, I screamed at him to surrender. And instead of surrendering, he started to pull his gun towards me, which was instant death for him. But this young man, he was a blonde, blue eyes, fair skinned, so handsome, he was like a little angel, but I still had to shoot him, and it didn't bother me the first night because I went to sleep, and I was so tired, but the second night, I woke up crying because that kid was there. 
And to this day, I wake up many nights crying over this kid. I still see him in my dreams, and I don't know how to get him off my mind. Shakespeare wrote, A soldier's arm may belong to his king, but his soul belongs to himself. If you're the last thing that a man sees before he dies, he'll live with you forever. You heard Joseph Robertson, a World War II veteran, talking about the psychological cost of killing. We do not want to kill, and it's a mistake to think that soldiers do not honor or mourn their enemies as well. We can teach a man to fight but he never stops being human. Joseph Robertson's interview was part of the StoryCorps project. The piece before that was sent to us from France by producers Marjorie Van Haltren and Helen Engelhart. And this is the Burma Band of the British Army's Light Infantry Division playing Last Post. In Vietnam, soldiers etched short slogans and even poems onto the side of their military-issue Zippo lighters. Veterans will recognize many of these slogans. They get recycled for new deployments and printed on T-shirts sold in surplus stores around bases. Things like, when I die I'll go to heaven because I've already spent my time in hell, or Kosovo, or Iraq, or Somalia. Composer Phil Klein set their words to music on his 2004 CD, Zippo Songs. When I die, bury me face down So the whole world can kiss my ass This is For the Fallen, a Memorial Day special featuring the voices of veterans and their families. Losing someone who has suffered and soldiered with you through tough times is devastating. It can take years before we talk about it. In this next piece, also from StoryCorps, Hannah Campbell interviews her father, Tom Geerdes, an Army medic in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment during the Vietnam War. What was the biggest change about you from Vietnam? I was not really worried anymore about being socially acceptable from the day I 
got out. I, I didn't shave or cut my hair for probably a year. And people that I knew before I left, even some of my cousins, didn't think too much of me after I got back. So I took a long bicycle trip. <laughs> and went off and got by yourself. Yeah. I rode straight north up through Minnesota, cut across, and uh, rode all the way to the West Coast. Took me about six weeks. Do you think that you sort of healed from Vietnam on that trip? It helped a lot. But uh, really, I actually didn't heal from Vietnam till quite a number of years later. I had a janitorial business, and I was doing floors at Sears. And uh, they had a they had a Vietnam movie on there, and uh, something just broke, and I cried. I sat up like a baby for a couple of hours while I was finishing them floors. Just sobbed like a baby because it was several good friends I lost. It's just too much devastation that I saw over there. Just too much hurt. And I really didn't plan on coming back. I'm glad you came back. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. My first. She was beautiful. Really, really beautiful. But I was afraid to touch her. She was lying at my feet, naked, staring up at me, beseeching. She was fifteen, maybe. Dazed, I hoped. I think I even said a prayer, Oh God, please. But the flies told me otherwise. They stood directly on her eyes. They stood directly on her eyeballs and walked across her pupils and pushed each other out of the way to look directly into her eyes before flying off and joining the others, buzzing excitedly between her legs, collecting in her open mouth, a roiling black mass and an obscene kiss. No blood, no witness save that pounding sun, oppressing her dark skin, slowly whitening like desiccated wood. Drenched with sweat from the sweltering heat, I shivered, spat out a mouthful of tepid water, wishing I had a blanket. I wrote that poem because it's not just the faces of our comrades that we can't forget. It's also the faces of the innocents, the victims, those who've been oppressed by tyranny or cruelty. Over the past 20 years, almost every time there's been a conflict, I've been called to go. And as devastating as it is to see my fellow soldiers, marines, sailors, or airmen killed, it's always the sight of dead children that affects me the most. Although I saw plenty of casualties in Desert Storm and since, it wasn't until I went to Haiti that I saw my first dead girl, and she stayed with me ever since. Been to hell, live to tell you Death is my business And business has been good If you don't know what hell is like With me Find out 
composer Phil Klein from his Zippo songs. I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. Becky Hers of Sacramento puts into words the fear that every military spouse shares. Her husband is a sergeant in the Army National Guard. This essay is part of a series entitled This I Believe. I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. Tonight I'll say, have a great day and I love you to my husband who is 11 time zones away in Iraq. Then I'll hang up the phone. I'll fall asleep as I did last night next to our baby daughter. We'll sleep in the guest bedroom downstairs. It's less lonely to sleep there for now. First, I'll pet and talk to our dogs. I weaned them from sleeping with me a few months ago, but they still seem a bit disappointed when I go off to bed without them. I'll promise them a long walk tomorrow, and I'll make good. In bed, I'll lay my hand on our daughter's chest several times before I fall asleep, just to make sure she is breathing. I'll curl up in two blankets, one from Guatemala, one from Peru. I'll allow these souvenirs of past travels to warm the empty space in the bed. I'll get up three times during the night to feed our baby. Each of those times, I'll tell her that she has a beautiful life to look forward to. I can say this because I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. In the morning, after my cup of coffee, I'll change diapers and move around loads of laundry. I'll pour dog food, eat cereal, get dressed and do the dishes, all with one hand holding our baby in the other. I'll do the shopping, pay the bills, and stop in at work to see how my employees are getting by. Every three hours, I'll stop what I'm doing to feed, change, and play with our daughter. I'll make good on the promised walk, with our baby strapped to my chest and a dog leash in each hand. When people say, looks like you have your hands full, I'll smile and acknowledge that it's true. But I make the best of it, because I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. If there is a letter addressed to me from the military, I'll open it, because I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. If there's a knock at the door, I'll answer it, because I believe that my husband will call me tomorrow. And when he does, I'll talk to him and tell him again that I love him. I'll be able to hang up the phone, keeping my fear at bay, because I believe, I must believe, that my husband will call me tomorrow. Becky's husband David came home on leave a few months ago to meet his baby daughter for the first time. He's now back in Iraq stationed in Fallujah, and is expected to come home soon. This, I believe, is independently produced for NPR by Jay Allison and Dan Gediman with Emily Botine, John Gregory, and Vicki Merrick. They're at thisibelieve.org. StoryCorps is sponsored by AT&T, produced by Sound Portraits Productions, and on the web at storycorps.net. And this is the U.S. Marine Band. Coming up, troops returning from Iraq and Afghanistan read their journals, poems, and emails. That's in a minute when we return with For the Fallen, a special from HearingVoices.com, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts.
From NPR, this is Hearing Voices. I'm Major Robert Schaefer, U.S. Army Special Forces, and this is For the Fallen, a Memorial Day special from HearingVoices.com, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. The NEA's project, Operation Homecoming, asked U.S. troops who served in Iraq and Afghanistan to write down their stories and reflections. More than 12,000 pages poured in, and from those submissions came a book, Operation Homecoming. I was lucky enough to have a poem of mine chosen for the book, and in this next half hour, we'll hear from some of the other contributors. The NEA also sent well-known authors to military bases in five countries to put on writing workshops to help the returning veterans. They released a CD of these writers and poets reading their works and actors performing works of veterans from earlier wars. Here is Edward Giro reading Sullivan Ballou's now famous Civil War letter to his wife. 150 years later, it still perfectly expresses the reasons men and women fight and die for their country. July 14, 1861, Washington, D.C. My very dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. Lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. Our movement may be one of a few days' duration and full of pleasure, and it may be one of severe conflict and death to me. Not my will, but thine, O God, be done. If it is necessary that I should fall on the battlefield for my country, I am ready. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how strongly American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. I cannot describe to you my feelings on this calm summer night when 2,000 men are sleeping around me, many of them enjoying the last, perhaps, before that of death. And I, suspicious that death is creeping behind me with his fatal dart, I am communing with God, my country, and thee. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me to you with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly on with all these chains to the battlefield. The memories of the blissful moments I have spent with you come creeping over me, and I feel most gratified to God and to you that I have enjoyed them so long. And hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up to honorable manhood around us. But, oh, Sarah... If the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you, in the garish day and in the darkest night, amidst your happiest scenes and gloomiest hours, always, always. 
and if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. O oh, Sarah, I wait for you there. Come to me, and lead thither my children. Sullivan. In January of 2004, 27-year-old Army Sergeant John McCary wrote a letter home as well. Sergeant McCary was attached to 134 Armor, 1st Infantry Division in the Al-Anbar province of Iraq. Dear all, we are dying. Not in some philosophical, chronological, the end comes for all of us sooner or later sense. Just dying. Sure, it's an occupational hazard, and yeah, you can get killed walking down the street in any town USA. But not like this. Not car bombs that leave craters in the road. Not jeering crowds that celebrate your destruction. I'm okay, Mom. I'm just a little shaken. A little sad. I know this isn't any divine mission. No God, Allah, Jesus, Buddha, or other divinity ever decreed, go get your body ripped to shreds. It's for the better. This is man's doing. This is man's war. And war it is. It is not fair, nor right, nor simple, nor is it over. I wish the presence of those responsible only to dissipate, to transform into average citizens, fathers, sons, and brothers. I don't care about bloodlust, justice, or revenge, but they they will not rest until our souls are wiped from this plane of existence, until we no longer exist in their world. Nothing less suffices. And so we will fight. I will not waver nor falter. Many of my fellows will cry for no mercy, no compassion. For those responsible, for those whose goal is destruction purely for effect, death only as a message, for whom killing is a means of communication, I cannot promise we or I will give pardon. With all, we will be harsh and strict, but not unjust, not indiscriminate. And we will not give up. We cannot. Our lives are forever tied to those lost, and we cannot leave them now, as we might have were they still living. Uh, for this particular letter in January of 2004, uh, I was writing after a fairly heavy month of casualties in our unit, and I had just attended my second funeral for multiple soldiers in a single day. So, uh, you know, you only have a small amount of time on the Internet, so I just kind of had to fire out everything that was brewing. As far as writing in the military or writing as it relates to people that are conducting military kind of work, um, for me it's invaluable. And, and you sort of have this natural sense that nobody wants to hear about it because it's so nasty. But what you find out is that well, when you do share those experiences, you, know, you learn about what you have in common with everyone else back home, and they learn from you. Um, it isn't that your weapon jammed. It's whether or not you want to shoot. No one leaves the gate looking to kill or looking to die. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I sure hope blowing up a whole group of Iraqis goes well today. You may be worn out, hounded by hours on end of patrols, investigations, emergency responses, guard shifts, but you never wake up and think, today's the day we'll kill a whole bunch of them. There's no kill them all, let God sort them out. That's for suckers and cowards. People afraid to delve into the melee and fight it out, to sort it out like soldiers.
Star Fix for Melvin M. Nelson, Captain, United States Air Force, retired, 1917 to 1966. Poet Marilyn Nelson helped conduct the writing workshops for Operation Homecoming. Her father was one of the famed Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. Here, she reads a poem from her book, Fields of Praise. At his cramped desk under the Astrodome, the navigator looks thousands of light years everywhere but down. He gets a celestial fix, measuring headwinds, checking the log, plotting wind speed, altitude, drift in a circle of protractors, slide rules, and pencils. He charts in his how-goes-it the points of no alternate and of no return. He keeps his eyes on the compass, the two altimeters, the map. He thinks, do we have enough fuel? What if my radio fails? He's the only Negro in the crew, the only black flyer on the whole base, for that matter. Not that it does. This crew is a team. Bob and Al, Les, Smitty, Nelson. Smitty, who said once after a poker game, I love you, Nelson. I never thought I could love a colored man. When we get out of this man's Air Force, if you ever come down to Tuscaloosa, look me up and come to dinner. You can come in the front door, too. Hell, you can stay overnight. Of course, as soon as you leave, I'll have to burn down my house, because if I don't, my neighbors will. The navigator knows where he is, because he knows where he's been and where he's going. At night, since he can't fly by dead reckoning, he calculates his position by shooting a star. The octant tells him the angle of a fixed star over the artificial horizon. His position in that angle is absolute and true. Where the hell are we, Nelson? Alioth in the Big Dipper, Regulus, Antares in Scorpio. He plots their lines of position on the chart, gets his radio bearing, corrects for lost time. Bob, Al, Les, and Smitty are counting on their navigator. If he sleeps, they all sleep. If he fails, they fall. The navigator keeps watch over the night and the instruments, going hungry for five or six hours to give his flight lunch to his two little girls. I've been all around the world. I've been in conflicts all over the place. And this poem is about something that I saw in the first Gulf War. It was not a fun thing to remember. It was something that kind of got buried, and I'd forgotten about it. And so when the second war started, and then all of a sudden, once again I found myself in the middle of the desert with a war going on, and this came rushing back to me. And lest I make it seem like, you know, there's something heroic or noble about this, I mean, this poem is also about a deep sense of shame that I felt because of that time that I hesitated. And, you know, it wasn't a long hesitation, but soldiers carry guilt with them in conflicts. So 
It was something that I needed to make sure that I was not going to do again. Yellow, or were they blue, white, red, ribbon everywhere. Stay out. But they were so small, plastic, barely three inches across. They didn't look deadly. Two soldiers wandered in curious. One said, I wonder what would happen if and gingerly tapped one with the toe of his boot, which then evaporated in a pink frothy cloud, a bubblegum pop, then cotton candy chunks arcing lazily through the air, landing with little wet thumps muffled by the sand. Then he died, just like that, just that quickly. One moment he was alive and curious, and the next he was just a scattering. But the second was still alive, and so to help him without thinking, others ran into that minefield. Pop, pop. We two now running, and I fastest first frozen. By the sight of so much crimson-soaked clothing, I didn't know where to start. Covered with the blood of others, later I was, mistaken as a casualty myself, but I would not let them take my uniform. They would still live as long as evidence of them remained on my sleeves, torn as they grasped for a few extra moments. The, the most tragic thing about this incident is that it happened actually after the war was over. At the time, we were with some coalition forces, my special forces team, and we were bringing them back from essentially the war. And they were in a very long column of armored personnel carriers, tanks. And we were going through well-marked lanes through a minefield. And somebody kind of tapped me on the shoulder and pointed. And there were two coalition soldiers kind of walking amongst these mines. And when something like that happens, it's, it's kind of like your life goes into slow motion. Because the first thought that comes to you is that this shouldn't be happening. And why are they there? It's a clearly marked place. They know not to go in there, but they didn't look deadly. They looked like little plastic, round, almost like snuff cans. And I don't know if we were yelling at them to get out of there or whatever, but even though we were about 100 meters away, you could hear his words as he looked at the other guy, and it was essentially, wonder what would happen if... And then you saw him kind of very slowly reach out and put his foot down on that mine. And then pandemonium broke loose because then, as soon as the explosion happened, many of those other coalition soldiers just ran into that minefield to give aid. And then, of course, there were more casualties. And we did the same thing at that point. We sprinted up those lanes as fast as we could, and then we went into the minefield as well, being careful, obviously, not to step on them. And that's when I came up on that soldier and he his his uniform was completely red and i'd seen injuries before and i am a well-trained special forces soldier and we know how to do these things and yet that guy i i just didn't know where to start i i didn't know what to do and i froze 
And I think the medic then ran up behind me and slapped me on the shoulder and yelled at me to do something to get busy. And, and, and so then I began helping him. But I felt an overwhelming sense of shame that after all of this very good and very expensive training then, that uh, not that I could have done anything for him, yet at the same time I felt like I failed him. And I wrote it down because I think what we try and do is we make beautiful things. That is kind of what it is that we're supposed to do, maybe in life. Why poetry? I don't know. This is For the Fallen, a Memorial Day special featuring the voices of veterans writing about their wartime experiences. The Navy ships Mercy and Comfort are painted completely bright white with enormous red crosses on them. They're floating hospitals. In March of 2003, 48-year-old Navy commander and doctor Edward Jewell flew out to the Middle East to join the medical staff on the Comfort, and for the next two months, he kept a journal. March 29th, we got creamed with fresh casualties last night. 30 new patients, both sides, all needing immediate and significant intervention. The injuries are horrifying. Ruptured eyeballs, children missing limbs, large burns, genitals and buttocks blown off, grotesque fractures, gunshot wounds to the head, faces blown apart, paraplegics from spine injuries. Our patients are mostly Iraqi. Along with their combat wounds, they are dirty, undernourished, and dehydrated. One rumor says we will treat all the Iraqi EPWs, enemy prisoners of war, that is, for the duration of the war, and these are the only patients we will see. If true, this would in effect make the Comfort a prison hospital ship. The corpsmen on the wards have to guard the prisoners and keep them from communicating with one another to prevent rebellion. As medical people, we are trained to care for the sick. It is difficult to stay mindful that these patients are the enemy and could fight back against us. April 11th. The number of patients coming aboard Comfort now is simply out of control. Like the characters on MASH, we have grown to hate the rumble of helos on the flight deck, since it usually means another load of Iraqi patients. Today, we received at least 35 more. New in the last 24 hours is a big influx of sick and injured children. We have only one doctor with residency training in pediatrics. Some of the kids are very ill. One was dead on arrival from drinking kerosene. They are sending everyone here. We simply don't know who they are, and no one seems to have a handle on where the patients are coming from, when they are arriving, or who is sending them. We take them all and do our best. Patients are now beginning to die because their injuries are so severe and they are getting to us too late. There is no long-term plan for these patients, and the ones who survive will need long-term care. Where will they go? Who will care for them after we leave? We have become deeply involved in a humanitarian crisis we will not be able to extricate ourselves from. A little bit more background about exactly 
what the hospital ship was. It's huge. It is a converted tanker. The Navy has two hospital ships, the Comfort and the Mercy. They are converted super tankers bought by the Navy in the early 1980s and refitted to be hospitals, floating hospitals. Theoretically, they can be ramped up to be a 1,000-bed hospital. There are 15 operating suites, 50 ICU beds. I think it was about 1,300 of you know doctors, nurses, corpsmen, medical technicians, and support staff. Once we started seeing casualties, it was work every single day without break, no days off. So why did I write? I did this because I thought that what we did on the Comfort was really remarkable. We, we went out there and took care of the enemy. And I assumed that everybody in the world knew what the Comfort was doing. I came home and I found out that the general public didn't know. And then I realized even people in the Navy actually weren't told what we were doing. I, and it, it really bothered me because it seemed like in the big picture of fighting terrorism that what we did should have been promoted really well. I mean, here we are taking care of sick and wounded enemy combatants. That was really my motivation for writing this. I wanted people to know that we did that. It was December 1943, and we were on a crowded troop ship bound for the South Pacific. Most of us were in our teens, seasick, homesick, and a little afraid. I had asked my best pal, Herman Hyman, what he was going to send his girlfriend for Christmas. Nothing, he answered. It seemed strange. He mumbled something about Hanukkah and changed the subject. I had no idea what he meant. I was a naive little Baptist boy from rural Mississippi. Herman was from the Bronx. What had promised to be a bleak Christmas turned even more dreary when the KP list was read over the ship's intercom. I was to be on kitchen duty on Christmas Day. The sergeant told us we would be crossing the international date line, so there would be two December 25ths. I'll do it for you, Herman said. Why? Because I want to, he laughed, patting me on the head like, a mascot. Herman was older than I. At the end of the second Christmas in a row, Herman found me alone on the stern of the ship, looking back at where we had been. He looked very tired. He handed me a can of ripe olives he had lifted from the officer's mess. Merry Christmas, he said with a feigned and fatigued ho-ho-ho. Why'd you do that? I asked over and over. He sighed in a sort of, you really don't know, do you, fashion. Then he answered, because I'm a Jew, little buddy, and Jews don't celebrate Christmas. And he told me all about Hanukkah, about another war that was fought 200 years before my Jesus was even born, about how the Maccabees whipped the Syrians in the big celebration and rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. He said we would have a big celebration one day. He told me about how his father would light a candle every night for eight nights, about the good food his mother prepared, and he named all the kinfolk who gathered. There weren't any Jews in my little rural community, no Catholics or Methodists or Presbyterians either, just Baptists. But there was a Jew there when I got back. Herman Hyman died for his country in the last days of the war. And when the war ended and I went home to Mississippi, Herman went with me. Happy Hanukkah, Herman. You would be 76 now. I'll light the eighth candle and we'll be together again. And tell Father Abraham, 
It's my time for KP. Will Campbell, the distinguished author, minister, and civil rights activist, enlisted in the U.S. Army when he was 18 years old. He was stationed in Saipan as a medic in World War II. Campbell was one of the teachers in the Operation Homecoming workshops. As was Victor Davis Hansen, a classics professor and military historian. Hansen was named for his uncle, a World War II Marine who island-hopped across the Pacific, taking beach after beach until he met his end on Okinawa, along with 12,000 other Americans who died there. While researching his namesake's actions during that battle, Hansen was surprised to find several living members of the 29th Marines, 6th Marine Division, who remembered his uncle. The more I learned about these men, the last handful of members of the 6th Marine Division that had fought and died on Okinawa, the more I was amazed as they answered a series of questions over the phone. Do you regret doing what you did? No. Do you hate the Japanese today? No. Do you think there could have been any other solution? No. Do you blame your commanding officers for putting you in harm's way? No. No sense of regret, no sense of anger, no sense of racial animosity. Among these many conversations I had, one veteran said, would you finally like the ring of Victor Hansen? What ring? His ring, he answered. I don't know of any ring. Everybody who knew Victor Hansen and our small family in the San Joaquin Valley of California, they were Swedish immigrants, they're all dead. Would I like his ring? Yes, I'd like his ring, I answered. Three weeks later, the ring arrived in the mail, 58 years after the death of Victor Hansen, 58 years after it was cut off his corpse and brought down Sugarloaf Hill. Where had it been? The people involved had called Mr. Hansen, and they said that the old Swede did not want to come to the phone, did not want to talk about the death of his son, Victor Hansen. And so they've kept it, kept it for 58 years until this moment this year. And I have it today wrapped around my neck as I speak, a ring that's been repaired and keeps me cognizant of the sacrifice that Victor Hansen made, but more importantly, cognizant of the idea of the type of people who fought I don't know if we're going to have men like this again because they're the expressions of a democratic state at war. We don't like to go to war in consensual societies. We're slow to wrath. But when we do go to war, out of the shadows come men like Twigger and Shearer and Itman and Cinco that do not like war, but they make war like no other people when they're asked to wage it on behalf of liberty and freedom. Will your children someday say, I'm sure glad Dad died to make Iraq safer? No. They died standing with their friends, doing their jobs, fulfilling some far-flung, nearly non-existent notion called duty. They died because their friends could have died just as easily, and knowing that, they would never shirk their duties, never call in sick, never give in to fear, never let down. When you've held a conversation with a man, briefed him on his mission, his objective, and reminded him of the potential consequences during the actioning of it, only to hear he never returned and did not die gracefully, though blessedly quickly, prayerfully painlessly. You do not breathe the same ever after. Breath is sweet. Sleep is sweeter. Friends are priceless. And you cry. There's no point, no gain, no benefit. But you are human and you must mourn. It is your nature. From the book Operation Homecoming, 
You heard John McCary, now out of the Army and writing for the Wall Street Journal. Dr. Ted Jewell, also now a civilian, but still working for the military at the Kimbrough Ambulatory Care Center, the medical facility of Fort Meade, Maryland. And me, Major Robert Schaefer, U.S. Army Special Forces, currently serving at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. The guitar music is by Jess Atkins. Operation Homecoming was created by NEA Chairman Dana Joya in cooperation with the Southern Arts Federation and the Boeing Corporation. The editor is Andrew Carroll. The website is operationhomecoming.org. Links to all the producers you heard in this hour are at hearingvoices.com. Funding for these specials comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Mix engineer for Hearing Voices is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com.